This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. It's possible you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 FM. We broadcast uh, through this section of uh, Savannah and Hilton Head up towards Charleston, but also at WAGP.net. And if you are tuning in for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. You can email them directly here. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Or you can call us directly at our 843 exchange, and that number is very simple, 525-1859. When you call, you can dictate your question, though we do give priority to live callers. Um, So however you'd like to give it to us. All right, Rick, I think we're ready to jump in with both feet. So let's go. By God's grace, we'll help someone. Indeed, Pastor, we do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, I have a little bit of a long question. Um, We were members of CBC before we moved up north to be with family. It's a really spiritually dark area, and the church options are few. We left the church that we had been attending for a little over a year because of apathy and carnality in the leadership of the church, as well as a lack of sound teaching. We have finally found a really solid church in another town, but it is KJV only which is really common for this area. Um, The teaching is phenomenal. It's a really healthy and growing church, and their statement of beliefs is really identical to to community Bibles. But when you look at their statement on the KJV, it is that they hold to the KJV as the inerrant standard for English-speaking people today. And when you really talk to them about it, um, they don't believe in the relevance of the original manuscripts at all for people today because they believe that God has given the KJV. So we've met with the pastoral staff. We were assured that our difference in opinion is not an issue and that we can still be members in good standing. The only time they would ask for us to use the King James would be if we were serving in a teaching position in the children's ministry. My question is, is it right to join a church with this belief, and can we be unified with this church in spite of their stronghold to this tradition? That's a great question. What state are you in, if you don't mind me asking? I guess we lost her. All right. Well, that's all right. She's listening or she doesn't want to tell me, but that's okay. Either case. No, uh, I appreciate uh, your your spirit in all of this. And obviously it is a challenge in our day to find healthy churches. I was at a pastor's conference at the end of last year. And uh, one of the speakers was just saying that there are Christians across the nation, some that drive an hour to two hours every single week because they cannot find a church that is sound doctrinally, that has moral integrity, that's not woke. And that's just the day that we live in. And I tell people all the time, look, you've got one slice of time to raise your children. And so if you have to travel on the Lord's day, it's not an ideal situation by any respect. Your only other option 
is to, you know, start a church with other like-minded believers. But it sounds like it's doctrinally sound. Obviously, I I don't think it's a sound argument to say that the only uh, translation that God preserved was the King James Version. And I'm guessing from what you've said that it's the old King James and not even the new King James. Now, the new King James is done a tremendous job in updating much of the archaic language. But if someone read just the introduction to the 1611 King James Bible, and when the uh, 400th anniversary came, I purchased uh, that copy, and in it is in the foreword. It's kind of interesting to read. You can pull it up online. But it, it says by the translation board that, you know, there were some issues that we weren't crystal clear on as to how they should be uh, rendered from the original languages into English. We believe that with time, uh, even this translation will be refined. In fact, when some people argue for the 1611 translation, they're really not arguing for that translation. They might be in ignorance, but they're really not because there's the 1611 and then there's the 1611B. So they went to print, and then about six months later, as they continued to study, they refined the language even more and came up with another edition. There was one in 1613, uh, but they discontinued that because of typographical errors. Instead of it saying, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, it said, thou shalt commit adultery. It was nicknamed the Adultery Bible. But in 1638, another uh, translation came up, because, again, the King James Bible uh, needed to reflect the English of the day. So we're actually, when we speak of the old King James, we're actually using the fifth revision. In between the 1611 and what people hold in their hands today is the old King James. There's nearly 100,000 changes. Understand, God's Word does not change. It's eternal. It's forever settled in heaven. But the English tongue changed. Listen, when early Americans came here to America, they didn't use the King James Bible. They used the Bishop's Bible. But what happened was language was evolving. And there's a lot of words today that we don't use. When my dad was a Boy Scout, uh, he said the Scout's oath, I promise to be square. When I was a Boy Scout in the 1960s, we rendered it, I promise to be morally pure. If I read my old King James in Philippians, it says, be careful about nothing. Uh, Look, when you cross the street, please look both ways. Be very careful. What do you mean be careful about nothing? Well, today we'd say be anxious for nothing. Be worried about nothing. And so, in essence, uh, there wasn't a word for worried or anxious in the 17th century. That was a word that came into English usage. and We coined a lot of new words to express that biblical thought, be careful for nothing. So when they wrote, be careful for nothing, it was a magnificent rendering of the Greek. Today, it might be easily misunderstood. So that's why we continue this process of Bible translation. And it is true, there have been some translations that have been less than faithful. But even in some translations that have been less than faithful, and I'm not talking about like the New World translation that the Jehovah's Witness, I'm just talking about some modern translations done by, you know, evangelical Christians, uh, even in those settings, you know, we're, we're talking about less than 1% of the, of the whole Scripture. So with that said, to pinpoint your uh, question, 
if this is the healthiest church you can find, and assuming they're not rigidly legalistic, and it doesn't sound like they are, for them to be able to say, well, look, we can agree to disagree if you want to use the New American Standard or the ESV or the Net Bible or whatever it is that you are using, that's fine with us. But we would ask that if you're in a teaching situation so that there's consistency with our children that you use the King James. So that's fair. I don't think that's unreasonable. And um, the only thing you need to watch out for is sometimes there's a rigid uh, legalism in a lot of King James-only churches. And assuming that's not present, that these are spirit-filled, godly people, uh, then I, I wouldn't discourage you from pursuing membership there. I really appreciate your question and the spirit in which you ask it. Thanks so much. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we do have another listener standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. I wanted to ask Dr. Brogy about um, the reference in Chronicles um, with Jabez and the prayer Jabez says, expand my territory. I was wondering, what does he actually mean by that? What does that, all of that entail? Well, it's a good question. There was a, a popular book done some years ago called The Prayer of Jabez. And um, it was done by a brother who's actually, you know, he was, he was a good brother. I've heard him speak on a number of occasions. One time he was on staff with Campus Crusade, an organization that uh, I worked for as well. Uh, but I think what he did in essence is he took this verse out of 1 Chronicles 4, and 1 Chronicles 4, 9 through 10 is where the prayer of Jabez is found, and really took it out of context. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about Jabez other than the fact that he's a descendant of Judah. He was an honorable man. Uh, his his mother's uh, name that she gave him meant sor- sorrowful. In either case, he prays for four things. He asks God to bless him, um, and that's not a bad thing to pray for. And so, you know, this is what was encouraged through the author of the prayer of Jabez. Uh, ask God to bless you, to expand your territory. And he took that, spiritualized it, and said, well, you want to expand your spiritual influence? That's a good thing to pray for, but it's not what the prayer of Jabez is really asking. He's praying for victory in the endeavors that Israel would have over their enemies and that God would allow them to retain and keep the land that he he promised. But it's not, you know, some prayer that we can claim today. Uh, There are aspects of the prayer that are important, but if there's any prayer that maybe we should be focusing on in the church, it would be the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Um, so it, it's like when uh, Josh was told, you know, I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord, plans for your welfare to give you a future and the hope. Well, what's, what's the context of that? The context is in reference to Israel's future. It really has nothing to do with my immediate future. It has everything to do with Israel, that if Israel would obey, as underscored in the precepts of the Mosaic Covenant, that God would bless them. And he would give them a future and a hope. But if they disobeyed and rebelled, they would come under his disciplinary hand. Now, there are aspects of 
truth there that we can apply today because all Scripture is God-breathed, and God still disciplines his people today. But there he was dealing with an entire nation. And so um, the prayer of Jabez is a good example of certainly making prayer a priority in our life. But there are aspects of it that we have to manipulate, take out of context, change the meaning, and as a result, um, it really distort it. Uh, there's a brother, Tim Chalice. Um, I'm sure it's, you'd probably just type in his name and Google it. And he did a, it's been years since I've read it, but he did a um, book review on Bruce Wilkerson's book. And it would, I think, be helpful. It made Bruce Wilkerson a rich man. And what people did is they they, they took it as much like um, what happened with Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life. It was written, you know, pretty broadly so someone could pick up The Purpose Driven Life and secular people who were not born again took it and said, I need to find God's purpose for my life without necessarily giving your life to the Lord Jesus. And when the prayer of Jabez came out, it was, you know, on Fox News and CNN and all these different people were interviewing Bruce Wilkerson and it had absolutely nothing to do with the way they were using it. And it was really a distortion of truth uh, in terms of God's plan for his people. It has everything to do with Israel. It has nothing to do with the church. And if there's a prayer that we should focus on, it would certainly be the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, as it's often called. Good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the four, next one. All right. 843-525-1859. And uh, a caller just dictated their question. Uh, their son is participating in a college-age Sunday school class, and the current curriculum is from Louis Giglio. The caller would like to know, is Louis Giglio a reliable source? And also, when did the gift of healing stop? You know, I've known Louis, Louis Giglio since the 1970s. Uh, he was a young man then, as I was, and he, I remember him coming onto the University of North Carolina campus. Uh, there was a brother named Leighton Ford, who was Billy Graham's brother-in-law, and he had a son, Sandy, who was actually in one of my Bible studies, and Sandy died of a, a heart condition, and so Dr. Graham agreed to come in on the campus at UNC. And I remember, Louis, you know, there were free speech platforms, and I spoke on those on occasion. And he was out there, and I thought, hey, he's a good brother, and he's defending the faith. Um, and so he's a brother in Christ, let me say that. But um, he, through his church in Atlanta, I think has taken some major steps of misguidance and instead of enhancing the body of Christ and edifying the body of Christ in the truest sense, uh, he is taking them in a different direction. They just had a conference a few weeks ago, and they had some speakers there who are full-blown egalitarians uh, and some who are cozying up to woke theology and other things. So I, I don't think, in my opinion, that he can be trusted. If you're willing to compromise to bring people in, and that's what they're doing, they are compromising truth to bring people in. You don't want to be offensive and say, well, a woman can't be a pastor. So what does he do? He has Beth Moore speak on Mother's Day one year in his church, in his pulpit. That's a gross compromise of truth. 
And if you want to be liked and you want people to like you, but in the process distorting the roles between men and women and the destructive model that becomes, you know, people would go to the Beth Moore conferences leaving saying, I want to be like Beth Moore. Do you really? Do you really want to be like Beth Moore? Do you want your kids to turn out the way her kids turned out because she was on the road all the time speaking? I don't think so. And so she's shown her true colors in the last 24 months and that she's now jettisoned the SBC. She's going to an Anglican church. You saw her last month in priestly robes serving communion. You know, and these are the kinds of people that Louis Giglio is promoting in his church and to the detriment of the body of Christ. And um, I know a lot of people who have attended that church and have been deeply disappointed. My grandsons uh, have friends who go to that church, and they always tell me, Dad, these these kids don't seem to really know the Lord. So um, I, I don't think it's a good curriculum by any means, because now you're giving an endorsement to his church and the broad theology that he teaches. Even if that particular Bible study was sound, you're giving endorsement to all that he stands for, and that's not healthy. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have another, another live caller standing by, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy and Rick. I recently came across messages by Robert Breaker on YouTube. He's an independent Baptist minister, and his doctrinal statement on his website, thecloudchurch.org, is very sound. His messages seem to reflect sound expository teaching of the Word of God regarding the non-negotiable tenets of our faith. However, I've heard just a couple of things that I haven't really heard before, and they both relate to your current study of Jonah. Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Robert Breaker's message used the Jewish and Gentile calendars to show that Jesus was resurrected to life on a Sunday and to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, that he would have died and been buried on a Wednesday just before sundown. And he also shared that in Jonah chapter 2 that there's significant evidence to show that Jonah actually died in the belly of the fish and went to Sheol for three days and three nights and was risen back to life and vomited up by the fish on dry land which I know from your message uh, this past Sunday that that's not true, that he did not physically die in the belly of the well. So I'll be following your teaching in Jonah for sure, but do you have any insights you could share to ensure I'm engaging in sound teaching from Robert Breaker otherwise? Thank you. Well, I've never heard of Robert Breaker until today, but it sounds like you are doctrinally discerning, you've checked him out, and you have concluded that he's a brother in Christ, he's not some heretic, and uh, he's a good man. Uh, With that said, the view that um, some have taken that Jonah actually died is very much a minority view, but there have been, as as kind of a side note, said in the message on Sunday, there have been a few good men who have actually held that view. Uh, because they they want to be faithful to the text, and they think, well, you know, if there's a parallel between Jonah and Christ that Jesus makes when he confronts the Pharisees and the scribes, and it's recorded, say, in Matthew 12, where the 
sign of Jonah is given that he had to have died, but he doesn't any more than um, Isaac, who is specifically called a type of Christ. We know Jonah is because Jesus taught us. We know that Isaac is because that word to pass is actually used of him. Um, so with that said, there's not a perfect parallel. I mean, he goes up on top of Mount Moriah. Uh, he's as healthy as can be. He could have easily have overpowered Abraham. Uh, he doesn't because like Christ who said, no one's going to take my life away. I'm going to give it. He's willing to let his dad place him there on the altar to plunge the knife through him until he stopped. So, it's not a perfect parallel, and let's just say for the sake of argument, I think I mentioned this at least in one of the services. I don't know if it made it to the final tape or not, but even if he had plunged the knife through and burned him into ashes, uh, he still wouldn't be a perfect type in that God would have raised him back up in a natural body only to die again. And so there's no perfect types between the sinless son of God and illustrations that we find picturing him in the Old Testament, because Christ was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrection body. So Jonah didn't die. He's in prayer. He's in earnest prayer. And that's why almost no one has held that position in the history of the church. But every once in a while, some guy who you respect, "Hmm, that's interesting. Now, in terms of your other question, it's an armchair question. In my next message in Jonah, we're going to spend probably 20 minutes of the message on it. But just briefly, you know, some reason that Jesus had to be in the tomb 72 hours because of the three days and the three nights uh, mentioned. But three days and three nights is, an, is a Jewish idiom. So we'll document that from Esther, from David's usage of it. But their argument is that Jesus, in essence, didn't rise from the dead at sunrise on Sunday, but he rose before sunset on Saturday. And we'll walk through how in this Jewish thought, a part of a day could stand for a whole day. And the same is true in the way they counted years. Uh, A part of a year could be counted as a full year. And so say if a king ruled for 14 months, but 13 of those months happened to cover the last month of one year and the first month of a third year, then they would say he ruled for three years. That's just how they uh, use this idiom. So again, uh, since I'm covering it in the next message, I'm going to cover it in depth. I would encourage you to listen. If you're a member of Community Bible Church or if you're live streaming, uh, I'll answer your question in full. Jesus died on Friday And I can promise you that. And he was raised from the dead early Sunday morning. We'll look at it in depth. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Okay, we've got a couple of callers standing by. Let's go to our first one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning. Thanks for the Bible line. Um, I have a question, I think. It's like when you address Jesus, you say, Jesus, my Savior and Lord, or Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Okay, you mean is there a difference between the two? Yes, so which one, uh, yeah, which should you use? Uh, Yeah, right. Well, um, it it would just be purely semantical to say that one is more faithful to the other. I think behind the issue, behind those words is a bigger issue, 
in that some people would make it very clear that you have to be able to say that he's your Lord and your Savior, that you cannot just say he's your Savior without his being also your Lord. And so that's the bigger issue, not the order of the words, so to speak, in which they are used, but that when we come to Christ, we embrace him as both Lord and Savior. And so you have a couple of theological camps, um, one that's called the Lordship Salvation Camp. And both camps are are grossly, I think, misunderstood. Uh, There are certainly people who wanted to underscore that when you become a Christian, you become a baby Christian, and there can be a whole lot of baggage in your life and some things that you're not even aware of. Um, The fact is, is that sanctification is a process and it takes time. And so there's some people in the Lordship Salvationist camp that say, well, if this sin is in your life, it must mean that you've never submitted to Jesus as Lord. And that's just not true. There's a process of spiritual growth that begins to unfold once we're born again. Um, So it, it takes time to grow. But I would say, in fairness to the Lordship Salvation Camp, there are individuals who would uh, unfortunately misrepresent the Lord, and this is what they're dealing with, who say, well, Christ is my Savior, um, and because I'm saved, it really doesn't matter how I live because I'm eternally secure. And that's also a misrepresentation of truth. And Titus deals with that, where he underscores the grace of God, and he also speaks of those who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. So certainly you don't, in a legalistic sense, even have to use the term Savior and Lord together. Take the Samaritans, for instance. I, I turn to Luke 4, and of course, uh, um, because of uh, her testimony coming back, the Samaritans stream out to hear Christ, and, and we're told from that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, Jesus' word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. They didn't say he's the Savior and Lord of the world. He's the Savior of the world. But understand, in biblical theology, inherent, and what the Bible reveals in the Tanakh and the Old Testament about the Savior of the world is that he's God. And so he is God and Savior. And so we don't want to overcomplicate the gospel where, you know, you tell a child, well, you need to repent. You know, you're, you're telling an eight-year-old, you need to repent. Well, what do I need, what do I need to repent of? Um, you know, I've never had a drink. I've never smoked a cigarette. Well, what do I need to repent of? It, you have to change your mind. You have to own your sin. And it might be for a child that they've lied. It might be that they've disobeyed their parents. But when someone comes to Christ, they're willing to own their sin. And to call sin, sin, you're willing for God to change it. Otherwise, you don't really have a need for a Savior. So when we call upon Christ, we're calling upon him not just to get fire insurance, but to find true, genuine forgiveness. And in the process acknowledging that he is Lord and he has permission to change my life that I've yielded to him. So you can say Lord and Savior, you can say Savior and Lord, it doesn't matter. There's no biblical mandate or pattern that you have to follow. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, 
And we've got another caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, my question is about, um, there's a pastor out that's uh, preaching a lot in the black community, and um, he's bringing up a lot of topics about... Um, Turn your radio down just a little bit so we can hear you more clearly, because uh, there's a six-second delay. There's a pastor in the community that you hear preaching. Go ahead. And he's preaching. Um, he's preaching good things about that the culture really needs, like uh, women wearing more clothes and a lot of the music and stuff. But then it gets strange. He starts talking about the uh, Book of Enoch and stuff like that, and how it. And so it was taken out of the canon by, um, you know, um, by the white man, is what he would say. Uh, and uh, I just really was knowing how I could, com- how you could combat that. I know because I, I do believe that it's not in the canon of scriptures. That it's probably just like good literature from back in the day. And I just wanted to know how uh, we, how we could combat that. Where we could go in the Bible to, to show that. No, it's a it's a great question. So you, the fundamental issue that you are raising is how did we get our Bible? Uh, how did God give us the 66 books that we have that we call the canon of Scripture? And so I've written uh, a book, How to Prove the Bible is True, which might be helpful to you. It's a booklet. And in addition, I have a course on bibliology. It's free. You can go to searchthescriptures.org. Now, it's not for the faint of heart. It's for someone who wants to be a serious student of the Word of God. And so if you go there, there's a section. There's six sections to it. There's over 500 pages of note-taking outlines where you fill in the blanks and so on. Um, There's a section on canonicity. How did we determine these 66 books? Well, in the truest sense, we didn't determine. We simply recognized. You see, man doesn't determine what books go in the Bible and what books don't. Man recognizes what was inspired by Almighty God. And so after, um, you know, when the, when the early church was started, we already had the Old Testament. Now, there were a number of books that were written between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, called Matthew. That's called the intertestament period. And during that 400 years, there were some writings that were done. Some of those writings are included in the Roman Catholic Bible, like First and Second Maccabees, like Susanna and the Dragon. So like in my Bible, in every Jewish Bible, there's 12 chapters to the book of Daniel. If you picked up a Roman Catholic Bible, there's 14 chapters to the book of Daniel. Well, they craftily added two writings to the end of Daniel that don't belong there. They're not included in the canon. So how do we know? So I walk through tests of canonicity, and we walk through actually five specific tests. Enoch is an interesting book, but it's not part of the canon of Scripture. Jews never recognized it as the canon of Scripture. The church, meaning the body of Christ, never recognized it as part of the canon of Scripture. It's not um, viewed by the New Testament writers as being part of the canon of Scripture. 
So for this pastor to come up and to say, well, you know, some white people who are maybe mad at black people, I don't know what his, what his motive is, but that's what you, that seems what you, I heard you say, you know, that they took it out. That, that's just nonsense. Um, the Jews aren't white in the truest sense. In fact, there's a lot of black Jews that come through Solomon's line. And so the great Ethiopian airlift that came out of Ethiopia were 13,000 black Jews who were brought from Ethiopia, Ethiopia into Israel. They come through Solomon's line. So it's not even, you know, and Christianity is not a white man's religion or a black man's religion. It's the religion for the whole world. So the fact that someone would make, you know, Christianity some kind of issue like that based on the amount of melatonin in your skin is just ridiculous. And the fact is, is that we're all related. We're all from one blood. We all descended from Adam. But at the Tower of Babel, because of man's rebellion, God divided the peoples by languages. And when you marry within language groups, you're obviously going to hang around with someone you can understand. That's what they did. And they began to marry within those language groups. And when you do it long enough, then you develop different distinctives, the amount of color in your skin, the shape of your eyes and so forth. Um, so we have Filipinos and Japanese and Koreans and Chinese and Indian people and uh, African people and Europeans and so forth. But we're all from one blood. So anyone who would make even this an issue, I think, is a dangerous teacher. He's probably adopted woke theology, and I would run far away. Here's a good rule of thumb. If it's new, it's not true. And so if for 2,000 years— not even the Catholics include the Book of Enoch. But, you know, if for 2,000 years Enoch was not considered part of the canon of Scripture, then I think it would be very dangerous for us to embrace it as a book that we should uh, hold on to and uh, that we should believe. So here's the thing is when Satan comes, he comes as an angel of light. And, um, you know, and if he does, so don't his pastors, Paul says, so don't his ministers. And so with that said, he may be teaching truth. And that's why you think, well, he's a good guy. You know, he speaks against this and speaks against that. And, um, you know, maybe he's a good man. Now, I will say in the 1611 translation, the first one that came out, and this goes back to one of our earlier questions today, uh, the intertestament books were placed between the Old and the New Testament. And why did they put them there? Because they said, we want you to know some of the history of what unfolded in those 400 years of Jewish history. And so they included them. Well, the Roman Catholics came back and said, ha ha, you see, you Protestants, you put them in your Bible and you really believe they're inspired. And again, in the preface 1611 translation, they very carefully wrote that they're included for the historical setting in which Christ came into the world and to shed light on what happened during that 400-year period, but not because they believed they were inspired in. So they then removed them in the next edition of the King James Bible. But when you got someone who's making, you know, the faith a racial thing, run away. I don't care if he's a white preacher, black preacher, whatever he is. That's, that's dangerous. That's not healthy. 
and you should run far away from a man who teaches like that. Let's go to the next question. All right. Alberto from Savannah is on the line. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead, Alberto. We're listening to you. What's yes. on your mind? Uh, my question is, see, if I committed sin, right? Yeah. And then it happened three months ago, then I go on vacation in three weeks or to come back to church. Then suddenly that woman is up in the church building, the pastor's waiting for me, and he starts screaming the top of his tongue, you know, to reveal that sin that which he doesn't know if I ask forgiveness for. And the Bible says God throws in the deep of the sea and remembers no more. And from the east or the west, it separates my sin. Then the following day, the evangelist, who's the son of the deacon there, preaches the same, basically the same thing. Then the son of the pastor said, oh, he did the, the young guy didn't know how to say it right. And he, he, again, he preaches the same, supposedly my sin, which I knew it was not from God because somebody would have gossiped three months ago to a co-worker of mine who was not a church member. And the deacon said it to the people I was staying with. Two weeks, two weeks before the pastor said it, and his son revealed, supposed to be revealed from God. So how do I know really if the message came from God or it came from gossip? Okay, let me see if I can sort this out. Uh, you're basically telling me that there's been some, quote-unquote, preachers in your church who had a direct word from God about some specific sin that you had been in that you confessed. Is that what I'm understanding to be true? I think so. I, I, I guess we lost him. So um, I, I would just, it sounds to me, you know, Alberto, you call on occasion and you have some really good questions, but it sounds to me like you're in a really crummy church because every question that you have raised about some of the pastoral leadership in your church reflects less than sound theology. And I don't know why you stay in it, because it sounds to me like you're a thinking person. You're trying to search the scriptures to find out what is true. And I don't know if it's a family attachment. You know, there are some people who are in crummy churches, and they say, well, look, you know, my family's been here for 150 years. My my dad went here. My grandfather went here. My great-grandfather went here. In fact, some of them are buried out back in the church graveyard. And I will often tell people, look, if your grandfather and great-grandfather could get up and leave, they would. They can't, but you should. And when you're in a crummy church like that, because it's rooted in what I would call Pentecostal, charismatic, extra-revelational theology, because that's what most of your questions that you have asked here on the Bible line reflect experientially driven theology rather than theology that's based on sound exposition. I know you call from Savannah. You need to find another church, and you need to get out of the church that you're in because it's not healthy. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. Let me make sure that we've had a very busy—oh, yes, okay. Uh, You can, when you call, if we're not here, you can dictate your uh, question— And we do happen to have a dictated question that somebody called and left this message. So let's go to that one now. Good morning. My name is Mary Wright. I want some information concerning the Bible for a 16-year-old young lady who uh, was baptized and given her life to the Lord. She needs something easy reading so she can understand it more. Um, I'd like some information concerning that also easy Bible reading books for my grandsons 
ages five, six to eight years old, brothers that were baptized and want to serve the Lord as well. Easy reading Bible for them. I appreciate it. My name is Marion Bright. Thank you and be blessed. Be safe and be careful in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, my sister. Appreciate both those questions. 16-year-old, assuming he doesn't have any reading challenges, like he's dyslexic or something to that effect, I would recommend a modern literal translation. Some people have trouble understanding the Bible because they're using a translation that reflects the language of 300 years ago. And so, again, a caller, a former member of Community Bible Church, uh, I don't know what state she's in now, but she called and said, hey, you know, this is a King James-only church, and you know, is it wrong? And I know it's not wrong, but it's challenging sometimes, especially if you're trying to teach your children the scripture. And so what's helpful is to have a modern, literal translation of the Bible. And by the way, I often quote the King James translation of the scripture because sometimes there's not a single English word that can render the Greek text. And if you're trying to do a word-for-word correspondence, instead of, you know, amplifying it like the message or the living Bible. And some of the paraphrased translations like the message is very dangerous. They've let, they left out the sin of homosexuality and other things. And, um, but lay that aside, you want a modern literal translation. So I would suggest the New American Standard Translation. That would be a helpful uh, tool for your daughter to have. It uses modern literal language. You might want to get a uh, study Bible. You could use certainly like the Ryrie Study Bible or John MacArthur, who you'll hear on this radio station. He has a great study Bible with a lot of notes in it. And so not just answering and observing the obvious, but maybe some more challenging things. Do you have a study Bible, Pastor Carl, that you agree with 1,000% of the time? Obviously not. There's no two preachers who agree on every single thing. But on all the critical major issues, both of those, either the Ryrie Study Bible or John MacArthur's Study Bible, would be very helpful, and both can be found in the New American Standard Translation. They're found in other translations too, but they're most helpful. And it's not by accident that most Bible expositors use the New American Standard. It's really the gold standard of Bible translation in my view. So um, in reference to your younger children, there's a lot of children's Bibles, some that are not that helpful. In fact, some that I think are a detriment. I own over 20 children's Bibles. One it says that Moses was floating down the river in a basket laughing. I thought, where did they get that? And then, of course, I look in the index. It was printed in Japan. I saved it just by virtue of an illustration. But obviously, Moses wasn't floating down the river laughing. The scripture says he was crying when Pharaoh's daughter found him. So you want a Bible, A, that is biblically accurate, and two, understandable. Some are beautifully illustrated, but with that said, the message is either watered down or sometimes it's too difficult to understand for a child of five, six, or seven. I still think the best one available, it's put out by David C. Cook Publications, and it's called the Children's Bible. 
Now, there's a lot of Bibles that if you Google the children's Bible that will come up, but the one you want is by David C. Cook Publications. And what's really good about it is that each section is indexed to um, the place in the Bible that they're drawing it from. So if they're uh, dealing with the the witch of Endor, they're going to index the passage from 1 Samuel where it comes from. And as our children got older, we would have older children read to the younger children. That helped in their reading skills. And then we would often say, okay, now we've heard it from the children's Bible. Let's read the full text out of a real Bible, so to speak. And let's see what we learned that we didn't pick up. And again, it embedded the truth and it covered all the major uh, Bible events uh, that would be helpful to your children. So that's a very, very good one. Some like the Adventure Bible. It's okay. I think it's it's fine. Um, but I still think that the Bible done by David C. Cook Publications called the Children's Bible would be worth your investment. If for some reason you live locally, I don't know if you're calling from another state, you can always uh, come by Community Bible Church office and we can have those available for you at the price we pay, which is bookstore costs before markup. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got some that came in via the mail. An anonymous uh, listener would like to know, where in Scripture does it speak about the levels of hell, and where in Scripture does it speak about the levels of heaven? Well, Scripture doesn't speak of either. So it doesn't speak of levels of hell or levels of heaven. But it does address the issue of degrees of punishment and degrees of reward. And I'm assuming that's what you are referencing. Let me turn to a critical passage. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. This happens at the end of the millennial reign of the Messiah, where the dead of all time are raised up and brought before Great White Throne. Today, if a person dies, they they go to uh, Hades. But there's coming a day when uh, all that are in Hades... Uh, will stand before the living God, and death in Hades, death has the body, Hades has the soul, will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the final resting place of all lost people. But John writes here, Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the final judgment of the lost. The only people who are present at the great white throne judgment, and you don't want to be here, are lost people, people who had, had never called upon Christ in faith to save them. And twice over, he underscores that you're judged according to your deeds. And you'll see this phrase used in the epistles and in the Gospels, for instance, in the uh, book of Romans, uh, Paul is addressing people who had been shown kindness. They had had a degree of revelation that maybe some Gentile nations did not have. 
And he says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? We often think, well, it's heartache and the bottom falling out that leads to repentance. Certainly does. But sometimes it's the kindness and grace and the love and the mercy of God that he shows his common grace to all men that should also lead us to repentance. But because he says of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. It's the same word that's used when Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. These people are treasuring up wrath um, for yourself in the day of wrath in revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And here it is again. And again, it's a quotation from the Old Testament who will render to every man according to his deeds. And it's found in the Psalms. It's found in the Proverbs as well. So God will judge us according to our deeds. Does that mean that we're saved by our deeds? Certainly not. The Bible is crystal clear and that God has only had one way of salvation in all time, and it is by the grace of God. People in the Old Testament were saved by believing in the provision that God had promised to make. In one sense, they were looking ahead. They were looking into the future that God would do what he promised. And when they offered those animal sacrifices, they were symbolic ultimately, of the Lamb of God who would die for our sins, just like baptism looks back at the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So God has only had one way of saving people, but the judgment still is according to their deeds. Why? For two reasons. Number one, a person's deeds will either show or not show whether or not they're born again. Uh, Titus 1.16 speaks of those who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. That is, their lifestyle says you really haven't had a new birth. Now, God hasn't called you or I to play junior Holy Spirit. That we, you know, we're professional fruit inspectors where we say, hey, you know, you're saved or you're not. But we can say with a certain degree of authority that when a man is in Christ, he's a new creation, his old life has passed away, and all things have become new. And that there's a new direction that life takes. And if that direction is not there, then it usually indicates there has not been a new birth. Now, every time the Lord describes hell, he describes it as an awful, terrible place. But he, again, underscores, do you remember on that occasion when he was dealing with what we call sometimes the evangelical triangle, those three cities where Jesus did all these miracles and He said, look, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. He's saying, look, if Sodom and Gomorrah had the revelation that you had in Matthew 10, they would have repented in sackcloth and ash. You have seen in its fullest sense the miracles of Almighty God, and yet you did not repent. Um, Jesus speaks to the leadership of Israel and how they used to like to walk around in long robes and love the greetings of men, and they wanted the chief seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the banquet. But he says, oh, but you devour widows' houses, and uh, you do things for appearance' sake. You, you pray these long prayers so everyone can see how spiritual you are. But he says, you'll receive greater condemnation. I often think, too, of a passage It's found in Luke chapter 12, and some have unfortunately abused these verses. And again, Jesus is telling a parable, and the thing about a parable is you, you, you're looking for the main lesson, the main truth that is 
found it. And he says, the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. Uh, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required into whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. He's not saying that some people who had just a little bit of revelation, they get a little spanking and it's all over. He's just using a common illustration of the day of how secular masters treated those that labored for them. And when you read what God says about hell, it's horrible wherever you read it. Anyone who goes to hell, it's a horrible place. So when Jesus describes it in general terms, like in Luke 16, where Hades, unrighteous Hades is described, the rich man who dies because he never changed his mind. He never repented. He never believed what God had revealed. He's in a place of torment. So it's a place of torment. It's a place of agony. It's a place where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. Just like I need a new body suited for heaven, an unbeliever needs a new body suited for hell because the Bible does not teach annihilationism. And so somehow in the perfect justice of God, people will be met out punishment and wrath. So hell is terrible for Hitler. It's terrible for the man who goes to church every week but does not receive Christ, never repents of his self-righteousness. It will be horrible, and it will be eternal, and it will be forever, but it won't be the same. Somehow in the perfect justice of God, and you can say the same is true for heaven. Heaven is a marvelous, wonderful place for anyone who goes. But again, even the believer is judged according to his deeds, deeds that were done in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God will be rewarded. Deeds that were done for the praise of men or deeds that were done when you were out of fellowship with God and so work done in the energy of the flesh will not be rewarded. Will rewards have an impact in heaven? Yes. God doesn't spell it all out. He, he just tells us, he commands us to lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. He's speaking to save people. He's not talking about earning salvation. He's talking to the saved person to invest in things that really matter, in eternal things. And we'll explore this because the book of Jonah explores it in our exposition of Jonah. And so somehow in the perfect justice of God, you have two Christians, one who's more faithful than another, but heaven won't be the same for them. It will be marvelous for anyone who goes, but it won't be the same. So God doesn't put us under some pressurized standard to perform. He says, all I ask you to do is to yield as a believer. And the spirit who lives in you will help you to do what you need to do. And in eternity, I will reward you for it. Well, there's the music, which means we're out of time. And so glad you could join us today. If you haven't registered for David Barton, space is running out. We're almost at the 300 mark. We're going to take 400. It, I suspect, might be full by the end of the week. Go to communitybiblechurch.us to hear one of the premier church historians, an American Christian historian. God bless you. Walk with Christ. 